good morning, Gateway. I am really glad to be with you this morning. I started to say be here with you this morning. I'm not glad to be here, but I'm glad to be with you. Uh, Diane and I have been at the beach for a couple of weeks, and you're the first to hear it. Um, I'm announcing today we are moving Gateway to the beach. Now, I know, yes, I know that uh, uh, you'll, some of you will have trouble finding jobs, kids in school, that's just details. We'll get all that done when we get there. Just, uh, you know, the first time I tried to read the Bible uh, all the way through in one year, years ago, I was uh, in my 20s and I was kind of rediscovering my spiritual life. And I, I didn't know there were these plans that you could use to read the Bible through in a year. So I, I just thought I'd start with uh, Genesis, which is the first book in the Old Testament. And I'd read through Revelation and, and I took all the chapters and kind of uh, divided the number of chapters, and okay, this is how many chapters I need to read a day, and I did pretty well for a while, and then, you know, I got to the last part of Exodus, and Leviticus, and uh, that was all she wrote. I, you know, there were t- too many regulations. I, I had no idea what to do with all of that, and I just abandoned it, uh, and I doubt seriously, we're, we're, uh, we have been, for those of you who've been with us for a while, you know this. Uh, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. And the first part of Exodus is dynamic, and, and it's a great story. Even that you can read sometimes and go, what? But it's, it's thrilling. But we're now into the part of Exodus where you kind of, you're not going to find your life verse. Um, today we're going to cover uh, three chapters, chapter 21 through 23, Over the last two weeks, Dean has gone over the Ten Commandments for us in Exodus chapter 20, uh, which sets us up for this. And what what, uh, I read a book by uh, Barbara Kingsolver at the beach called Poisonwood Bible, and one of her characters calls the Ten Commandments the Ten Ways to Wreck Your Life. Well, what you're going to hear today are a whole laundry list of ways to wreck your life. Uh, If you have a Bible... um, the NIV version, at least, gives these chapter, I'm not chapter headings, these, these headings over sections of the passage that we're going to go over this morning, and Josh and Jessica Holcomb are going to be reading some of this. We're not going to read the entire section of 21 through 23, but uh, these are the chapter headings. Hebrew slaves, personal injuries, uh, protection of property, social responsibility, laws of justice and mercy, Sabbath laws, and then the three annual feasts. Now, for many of us, this stuff is about as motivating as changing the oil in our car and cleaning out our gutters. But I want you to hear this. Listen to this verse from Psalm 119. This is, this is Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. So the honest question for us is, do any of us really feel that way about uh, God's law? Because that's what he's talking about, especially this part that we'll be looking at this morning. So Exodus 21 through 23, let's get a representative exa- uh, sample of it. Josh is going to read for us 21, 1 through 4, and this is about Hebrew slaves. Josh? These are the laws you are set before them. For you, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife, when he comes, she is to go with him. 
If his master gives him a wife and she bears sons, bears him sons or daughters, the woman and the children shall belong to, the, to her master and the man, sorry, and alone the man shall go free. Did you get all of that? You're taking notes. Okay, now Josh is going to read from the section that the NIV calls personal injury. This is chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. Let's follow this. Anyone who attacks their father or mother is to be put to death. Okay, now I want to pause over that one because I think that one makes a lot of sense. Go ahead, Josh. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or still in the kidnapper's possession. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Once again, we should pause. Go ahead, Josh. If people quarrel and one person hits another with a stone or their fist, and the victim does not die, but is confined to bed, the one who struck the blow will, be held, will not be held liable if the other can get up and walk around outside with a staff. However, the guilty party must pay the injured person for any lost time and see that the victim is completely healed. Now, as you can see, this is not uh, change your life kind of stuff. But let, let's go back to Psalm 119 for a second. Psalm 119, Psalm 119 is a, uh, in the middle of the Bible. It's a long meditation about God's law, essentially. Here's what the psalmist says, verse 131. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Uh, is that how you feel about the commandments concerning Hebrew slaves or all of you panting this morning? Psalm 119, verse 111 and 112. Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever to the very end. Uh, verse 143. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delight. Uh, are the commandments that you just heard about personal injury your d delight? Are you inclining your heart this morning toward putting someone to death who's kidnapped someone else. You get the idea. So what are we to make of the law of God? How do we think about this? How, how, do we, how do we understand it? How do we interpret it? How do we apply it to our lives? There are in all, in the back half of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there are 613 commandments. Are we supposed to feel about those commandments the way the psalmist felt about those commandments. Truthfully, we're more likely to feel the way Leah from the Poisonwood Bible felt. And, and how in the world do we apply them to our lives? Let's, let's get three more sections just to get a representative sample. You get it, but Josh is going to read again for us from Protection of Property, chapter 22, verses 5 and 6. If anyone grazes their livestock in the field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in someone else's field, the fender must make restitutions from the best of their own field or vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns shocks of grains, standing grains, or the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. You guys remember that uh, when you start fires in your field. Okay, now Jessica is going to read from the section that the NIV titles Social Responsibility, chapter 22, verses 20, 21, and 31. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you are foreigners in Egypt. You are to be my holy people, so do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. Okay, uh, finally, 
Uh, Jessica is going to read from the section that the NIV calls Sabbath laws. And we usually do this here at Gateway. Uh, I, and I, I want us to just feel the, I don't know, the weight of this and the awkwardness of this, honestly. Let's stand out of reverence for God's Word. And this last section, she's going to be reading, um, again, from the section called Sabbath Laws. This is chapter 23, verses 1 through 3 and 10 and 11. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. And did you read 10 and 11? Okay. okay, yeah. For six years, you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Father, thank you so much for your law. And this morning, I pray that you would train our hearts and our minds to understand and even delight in your law. Uh, we, we make ourselves available to you this morning. God, we don't believe that any of us are here by accident. Some of us are here by habit. Some of us are here by uh, latest inkling, a tug on our hearts. Uh, but all of us here, Lord, all of us are here, Lord, by your design. And, and right now in these moments, we make ourselves available to you. Speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Josh and Jessica. Okay, look at Gateway. We take the Bible very seriously. And if you look up our belief statement on our website, we have a belief statement about the Bible. And I, I want us to read this together just to make sure we're all awake. This is from the website. This is what we say about the Bible. Read this with me if you would. The Bible, 66 books of the Old and New Testament, is God's completely true story about who he is, what he's done, and what he's doing, and what he will do. It contains the Old and New Testaments, and it is totally unique. It was written by human authors under the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is the supreme source of truth for Christian beliefs and living. It is our primary and final source of authority. And what we say here, we mean about the whole Bible. So we can't simply read something like Exodus 21 through 23 and say, oh, that's just weird Old Testament stuff, I'll dismiss that, or I don't know what to do with that. In fact, in defense of this part of our belief statement, on our website, we, we list some scripture as a, you know, an explanation and a, a defense. And you can also find those on our website. For example, 2 Timothy 3.16 we offer, and that says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. Or Psalm 119 again, verse 160, all your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. All your righteous laws are eternal. What do we mean by that? I mean, if we're honest, these passages of Scripture aren't usually the dog-eared section of our Bible, right? We don't retweet laws about personal injury. Well, today I want to give us a framework. Think of it like an A-frame. A framework for 
I think it will help us understand and apply the Old Testament law because over the centuries, Christian theologians have obviously had to struggle with this question. And fortunately, through them, God has supplied some helpful ideas, uh, helpful framing that, that enables us to understand and place this and, and, and even appreciate this and apply it. And I believe this will help us know how to apply this part of God, the God-breathed word to our lives. So this framework for understanding the law is made of three big picture ideas. Some of you are familiar with this, and this will be a great reminder for you. For others, I hope this will be very informative. I, I recognize today is not going to be incredibly inspiring, but I hope it will be informative, and I hope this will equip you to read this part of God's word and even delight in it, dare I say. So the three big picture ideas that help us frame God's law is one, as you read the law, remember that God is building a nation. This is part of the activity. This is a part of what's going on in the law. Secondly, as you read the law, keep in mind that the law shows us the character of the lawgiver, always. And this is always the question that we should bring to it. Third, as you read the law, remember that the primary purpose of the law is to be a guardian, a, a kind of a, a, both a prison guard and a handholder that leads us to Christ. So let's take those one at a time. God is building a nation, first of all. Let's remember that. Now, this is one of the primary emphases of God's activity throughout Exodus. Uh, we've talked about this repeatedly. God was building this ragtag company of former slaves into a nation and the law was part of his building material. Remember, even though they were mostly an ethnically homogenous people, they still had no collective identity. Individually, they would have identified with their tribe at most, and many of them just with their family, but rarely as a whole people. So they had no collective identity. Plus, they had been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. As Americans, we can imagine what that could do to a people because we've experienced slavery in our context. Now, ancient Near Eastern slavery was not anywhere near as cruel as American-style slavery, but it's, it was still emasculating and culture-destroying. So God had to move these people from that into a nation-state. And more than just a nation-state, this would be a nation that would represent him. That would win battles in his name. This was part of what he was doing through the laws and the statutes. He was building a nation. I want to pause for just a second here, <clears throat> back up from this. If you think about it, this is always what God has been about. He's always been about creating a people for himself. Think of Adam. It's not good for man to be alone, God said concerning Adam. And then he, he said, he, he made Adam a companion. And then he said to Adam and his companion, you're my image. Now I want you to go be fruitful and multiply. I'm going to make a people out of you. He said the same thing to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God made an arrangement with Abraham, and he said, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you, and your name will be great. You'll be a blessing. This is what God is doing today. Through us, through the church, he's creating a people that can represent him. It's not just about me and Jesus. God is creating a people. If you were here a few weeks ago, you may remember the passage we quoted from 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter said this, quoting several Old Testament phrases, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, you, 
of people belonging to God. He's talking to us. God is always tying us together, building a movement. And through the law, he was doing that work with these people. He was building a nation that, that would represent him to the cultures around them. So what? What does that mean? Well, that means as you and I read the law, we should look for God's nation-building activity. How did he want these people to act? What, what were they supposed to be like? But that also means that some of the law was particular to Israel as a nation. If it was their constitution in effect, it's not my constitution, certainly not the constitution of America. Again, that means that part of the law, part of what we read here, does not apply to us directly. Let me explain that a little more. Stay with me. Some of you like to nerd out on this stuff, but <clears throat> for the rest of you, stay with me. Old Testament scholars have, have long realized that the law overall fits into like three categories. Uh, there was civil law. There's, uh, there's ceremonial law. Thank you, Michelle. I don't know if that's going to help. My voice did this over the holidays. I feel fantastic, but my voice uh, kind of disappeared. There's ceremonial law and there is moral law. I guess it's what you get at, uh, for yelling at the waves for three weeks. The main differences between them, so civil law, ceremonial law, moral law. The main differences between them are in their purposes, and I want you to see this. The civil law deals mainly with relationships between individuals. The settling of disputes. You heard some of that in what Josh and Jessica read. And with the descriptions of proper behavior. <clears throat> the ceremonial law deals with the priesthood how they were to be initiated, and the procedures they would use to perform their various religious processes. The moral law deals with, the, with character issues, and the moral law is based on, on the character of God. And this part of the law extends, the moral law, extends from the Old Testament into the New Testament. This part applies to us. For example, it was wrong to lie in the Old Testament. It's still wrong to lie today. So again, for those of you who like to nerd out on this kind of thing, I want you to look at these lists. You can pull this from, uh, by the way, if you just go to the web and do a good search, you'll get similar lists. And, and most of these will have, there are some disagreements, but they'll have most of these in common. They put them in the same category. Civil law dealt with disputes between individuals. It was part of the Jewish government process, establishing a government. And look at some of those examples. Uh, you know, how dress, attire, what to do with divorce, what a debt, Sabbath-breaking punishment, robbery, extortion, false witness, restitution. The Constitution of Israel. The second category was, I, I listed 18 examples here. The second category was ceremonial. The ceremonial law dealt with the priesthood, and this expired with, with the ministry of Jesus with him fulfilling all that the priests did in the Old Testament. I've listed nine there. Uh, cleaning the house of a leper, priestly duties, the consecration of priests. And finally, there was the moral law. There's no expiration on this because this is based on God's character. So several items here, idolatry, uh, sexual sins, uh, sacrificing children to, to false gods. So the first part of the framework enables us to understand and apply God's law big picture in recognizing that God is, was building a nation. 
and some of what we find in the law is constitutionally about the nation. Uh, It doesn't apply to us directly, but even those parts of the law that don't apply to us directly, they reveal important things about God because of the second part of the framework. And the second part of the framework that helps us understand uh, and, and apply the law of God is that the law shows us the character of God. It shows us the character, the priorities, the heart of the lawgiver. And this truth applies to every part of the law, the civil, ceremonial, and moral. So whenever you read Exodus 21 through 23 or passages like that, ask yourself, what does this show me about God? What's the principle behind this law that shows me something about God? Let me give you just a few examples that I came up with from 21 through 23, principles behind the law that shows us the character of God, that we can learn things about God from it. One thing we learn when we read these chapters is that God has standards. I mean, that's pretty obvious, but it's worth noting. There are things that are forbidden. Or as Dean said last week, God sets limits. And sometimes those limits are fiercely enforced. Did you notice that kidnappers were to be put to, to death? God commanded his people to perform capital punishment on kidnappers. Remember what we sang earlier? You heard your children then, you hear your children now, you are the same God. You answered prayers back then and you will answer now, you're the same God. You're, you're, we're providing then, you're providing now, you're the same God. You moved in power then, God, move in power now, you're the same God, and he is. So we can, we can identify principles behind God's law and know that God still out, operates on those principles. Even in the New Testament, we find clear teaching reminding us that God has standards and that his patience wears out. And when it does, that's decidedly bad news. He's fierce. So from the law, we are reminded that God sets limits. He has standards, and those standards must be met. Another thing we learn as we read these chapters is that God's standards are are often not the same as the world's standards. Remember that. God's standards are often not the same as the world's standards. For example, you may know that the ancient Near East was a uh, honor-shame culture. In honor-shame cultures, anything that dishonored your family, anything that dishonored your family must be avenged. And look, in honor-shame cultures, that just made emotional sense. Everybody thought everybody felt that way. Of course, it's right to avenge the honor of your family's name. And yet, in the law... God forbids avenging an accidental death. So imagine your brother was killed by someone accidentally. Well, in honor-shame culture, that death must be avenged regardless of the circumstances. And everyone understood this. But God forbid, forbid this kind of avengement, if that's even a word, in, in the case of accidental death. In fact, he provided a way out for the person who had accidentally killed someone else. I think this observation is interesting. Don't snooze on this. You know, numerous surveys, lots of surveys from from Gallup and and lots of other survey organizations have been conducted of the American culture over the last two decades, and they have consistently revealed, don't miss this, there are no widespread discernible behavioral patterns that distinguish Christians from non-Christians. None. In other words, we Christians look and act, and buy, and watch, just like the culture around us. 
Yet, if we examine God's law carefully and, look, and then look carefully at ancient Near Eastern culture, we find that God commanded a clear break. His standards are not like the world's standards in some very discernible ways. Let me give quickly two other examples of the way the law shows us the character of God. The law makes it clear that God has a very special interest in the treatment of the poor and disenfranchised. Did you notice that this entire section, these whole two chapters, begin with an analysis of the equitable treatment of slaves, right? Uh, this whole section starts out with addressing how the parties most likely to be mistreated are to be treated. God has a special interest in the treatment of the poor and the disenfranchised. A final example, I want to encourage you to give these three chapters a reading sometime and look at all of the ways that radical fairness and equal treatment, no matter who you are, are the undergirding principle in all of this. This is clearly a part of God's character, and the law shows us this part of God's character. Throughout the law, we find the character of the lawgiver revealed, and that's one of the ways that helps us understand, appreciate, even delight in this part of God's Word. The final part of the framework, if you're still with me, for understanding the law is recognizing that the law is the guardian that leads us to Christ, and we'll end with this. Now, let me back up and, and look at what we've seen so far. Through the law, God was building uh, a nation out of these Israelites. And through the law, we get to see what the lawgiver's character was like, what God was like. And as we looked at those first two parts of the framework, we were, we were, we were knee-deep in the law itself. We were looking at these passages themselves. We were reading the law itself and seeing how God was building them into a nation. And we were reading the law itself and seeing how it displayed the character of God. Through the law itself, we find out his values and his priorities, what he wants for his people. There's one more thing for us to remember in this. Uh, the law was delivered to be obeyed. Now, that's obvious, but uh, that's clear. But it's worth saying, this was Israel's job. This was their part in their covenant relationship with God, to obey the law. God didn't offer them a list of wishes. He offered them a list of commands. And yet... They never did. They never did get it right. And maybe they never could. Maybe this, was, maybe this was always part of the exercise from God's perspective. Maybe the law was designed to drive them toward a deeper dependence on God. I had a good friend in seminary who... Uh, at an end of a prayer session one time, he told this really powerful story about he had a younger brother who had lots and lots of physical problems uh, that, and also some um, mental problems, not mental health problems, just lots of learning problems. And um, he, his whole life, to manage his physical problems, he was on a menu of uh, medications. And, you know, he recalled a time, uh, many times, praying with his younger brother for healing, his younger brother praying for healing for himself, crying out to God, why, why won't you make me normal? He said he remembered one time praying for healing and his younger brother getting frustrated and goes into the bathroom and grabs his uh, 
box of pills, you know, you open up a day at a time, and his was a big one, tons of pills for each day, throws it against the wall of the bathroom, explodes everywhere, pills everywhere, you know, yelling out to God, God, why won't you make me normal? And then tears in his eyes. You know, this, this guy who's in seminary with me said, uh, you know, uh, it's amazing. My younger brother taught me the deepest lesson I've ever learned in holiness. Uh, we had this group of people one time over at my house. We were praying for my younger brother uh, to be healed. And, and at a certain point, my younger brother you know, tells everybody to stop. And he says, I, I feel like God has shown me that this, and he's got his pill box with him, this has driven me to him. It's made me desperate for God. And that was the point of the pillbox. And I wouldn't be who I am without this. Maybe this was one of the purposes of the law all along. Maybe that's why King David would sing about God's desire for broken and contrite hearts. Maybe that's why Jeremiah the prophet talked about the need to have our hearts circumcised. Look, circumcision was the practice of circumcision was a critically important part of the law. It distinguished the Israelites from their neighbors. Uh, and, And yet Jeremiah seemed to be suggesting that circumcision was pointless if it if it didn't involve the heart. Maybe this is why the prophet Hosea exhorted the people to remember that mercy is better than sacrifice. Mercy, which essentially means having a heart for God and for the things of God, that's better than the entire system of worship that God set up for them. Maybe the main purpose of the law was like the pillbox of my friend's brother. Maybe it was intended to drive them to deeper dependence. We know we're supposed to obey this God, but we can't. Our flesh is weak. We keep failing. We are completely dependent on you. Even for our part of the relationship with you, help us. We need a savior. We need a rescue. Fortunately for all of us, help was on the way. Even though they failed repeatedly, help was on the way. Even though they sometimes forgot to look for it, help was on the way. And the law was in place, reminding them, steering them, guiding them, convincing them, confronting them, and guarding them through their successes and their failures, all toward the Messiah. The point was never the law. The point of all God's activity was to rescue and save a people for himself. This is always what God has been doing, rescuing a people for himself and the one who would rescue him, them and us from the Egypt of their their sin and failure. He was on the way. His name would be Jesus, which means, by the way, Messiah, Savior, Rescuer. Did you know the, uh, the Apostle Paul's story? Some, some of you do. Uh, he, was, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, Paul. He spent a good part of his life learning the law. He was a, a Pharisee, and the job description of the Pharisees, by the way, was to dissect and analyze the law and then make sure that they themselves and everyone they knew was in strict compliance to it. At one point, Paul called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. That's, that's like saying, Paul saying he's a Pharisee of Pharisees is like saying Mozart wrote music. But something happened to Paul on the way to absolute obedience to the minutia of the law. 
he met Jesus. And everything changed. You don't need a 75-watt bulb when you have the sun. And you, you can almost hear Paul's breathlessness when he, when he writes to his Galatian friends later in his life explaining what he had discovered about the law. He concluded that whole explanation with this. Listen to this. Look, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness, which means right relationship with God, rightly living, right perspective on things, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised way back in Abraham, I'm going to make you into a people, I'm going to make you great, I'm going to bless you, bless others through you. What was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. So whenever you read the law, remind yourself that God was building a nation. Remind yourself to look for the character of God and the priorities through the principles behind the law. And, and most importantly, Remind yourself that this is why we need Jesus. It's either Jesus or it is taking your best shot at being perfect. And none of us are going to get there. We need a rescuer. Fortunately, we have one. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Let me close in prayer. Father, this is, uh, I, this is boy, this is dry and dusty unless you enliven it by your spirit. This is um, pointless and dull unless you bring it to life. Give us, Lord, an appreciation for, first of all, your priority in building us into a people this has always been your work. Secondly, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see you through the law, to see you, to see your character, to see your joy, to see your fierceness, to see uh, the clarity, to see the distinction between you know, who you are and, and what you make of a life and the world around us. And finally, Lord, today, um, we're driven to Jesus. Today we are, <laughs> we appreciate that we have a savior, a rescuer, who was perfect and now just gives us that perfection. It's just applied to our lives. It, 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 it greases our relationships. It establishes our relationship with you. Today we receive it, we walk in it. We thank you. You are a good, 
good Father, and uh, we worship you with heart, mind, and voice. 